All right, welcome to Now This Is Podcasting. I'm your host, Connor, and I'm here with Calvin. Hey, thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for thanks for doing this one. I know I'm a little under the weather, but I'm glad that we got together to record this. Uh, we're doing Pan's Labyrinth today. Yeah, very excited. So the reason we're doing this is because um, Guillermo del Toro's um, Nightmare Alley comes out December 17th. And so we wanted to uh, talk about his... I, I feel like this is his greatest... His most talked about film critically highest i think rated and then you have the shape of water but i think this is the one this one sticks out more uh in his collection than shape of water does you know what i mean yeah i agree i went and looked at some contemporary articles about it like roger ebert says it's one of the greatest fantasy films ever made despite it being in like a war setting Mm -hmm. uh new york times has glowing review about it the guardian has a really great a lot of superlatives in its article about it. So it was really well liked when it's released. And I think it has definitely stayed like one of those like kind of mainstays of his filmography for sure. Yeah. I think Metacritic even uh, still has it as rated as being like a 98, which is, which is crazy. Metacritic is the most critical uh, review aggregate website that I've ever found. So the fact that it has a 98 is incredible. And here we're going to do a two part review where we absolutely tear it apart. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, so this is directed by Guillermo del Toro. Uh, it had a budget of $19 million, and it made $83.9. It made $84 million. I'm always just really impressed by, uh, you know, non-English speaking film, uh, films that, that do well in the U.S. There's just so mm-hmm. many people who are like, you know, don't want to take the time to, or they're like, oh, it's not in English, like not worth it. Mm-hmm. And, and despite kind of some of the... Uh, some of the ways I'm critical over this movie, I still find it super fun to watch. I do like this movie, and I think it is good. But uh, I, I, I always... Like like Parasite came out and that that did so well, and yeah. and that's like one of the best movies I've seen in a long time. So I always appreciate like the non English speaking films that come over and do really well, and this did well. Uh, and it's just about like two hours long. Uh, but yeah, what is your what's your first impression of this one? So I want to say that uh, I first saw this movie in two thousand nine, two thousand seven to twenty ten, somewhere in there. Um, but I feel like it was two thousand nine. But I loved this movie when uh, when it first came out. Um, I mean, it's the story of a child making sense of her world through fairy tale trials that mirror the problems uh, that she faces in her real life. It has this fantastic world building, uh, exceptional costuming, like uh, so much charm. It also has a lot of flat characters, um, half-baked themes, and a rebel subplot that completely distracts the audience from the heart of this movie. So this movie is really a mess. Yeah, I... um. I think I, I saw this pretty much like around when it came out in like 2006. I remember seeing it like pretty early. Um, I always thought it was really neat kind of taking the whole fairy tale idea and kind of turning it on its head, making it really dark. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was kind of the first movie I think I'd ever really seen like that. That was so dramatic in that way, but it's been 15 years and I've seen other movies since then, but that was probably like the first one I was like, Ooh, like this is like a really creepy fairy tale movie and really gory. Oh my goodness. It's kind of amazing how, it seems to somehow fit well, despite it being a little girl kind of running around on these little adventures. Like yeah. it all, it all, like all that stuff works out so well for me. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting aspects to it. Like you said, I uh, some of the best stuff is all the prosthetics, all the all the creature designs. I love that about this movie. All the fantasy elements really work for me. But in the end, this story is so cluttered, and it's like you said, it's 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 like two different stories competing with each other. And they don't seem to be cohesive at all. So that's kind of like where my big issue comes from it. All that being said, I still like, this is still a movie I just sit down. I, I had no problem 
uh, wanting to watch this and do a review on it because I do. I just like Pan's Labyrinth. I think it's a fun movie. Yeah. And so I might sound a little bit hypocritical here because I uh, I went on, I waxed poetic on some of our other episode, uh, episodes, especially the one about Mother, where that movie is a, a disaster. I mean, really, like in terms of like so many different elements and all of them saying different things at different times. But the difference here is that the whole point of this film is a straightforward narrative and you can't, you can't make it a mess then because it needs to be a story. It needs, everything needs to be connected. Yeah. I think one thing about mother, cause I agree that movie is a mess, but it's a mess in a way that's like anxiety inducing. And like, that's the point of that movie. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a mess in service to the film. It's a mess in service to its own narrative. Right. As an element. Yeah. Whereas this movie, it, it, it can't, yeah, like you said, it, it can't be a mess because now I don't know really what the point is anymore. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what are, what are my character motivations? What is the goal here? Because uh, like you said, it's supposed to be a straightforward narrative. I do have a, I do have one question for you. You had a, a note on it. Uh, this is not, it's also weird too, because when the film ends, it has a different title at the end. Yeah, El Labyrintho del Fauno, which is just the Vaughn's Labyrinth. The, but the name got changed for a lot of Western-speaking, uh, or a lot of Western countries, because they felt like the, the Greek god Pan was a more recognizable character than just... So that there would be a, like more audience draw to see Pan's Labyrinth rather than the Fawn's Labyrinth. That being a little bit more vague and obscure. And like you said, there's already like you have a difficult time uh, having Americans go and see something in another language because um, that's you. we have such an abundance of, of film already in English. What's the point of seeing something right, in another right. language? So they just really, the problem, we'll talk about this later, but like it's not the God Pan. And that's a big problem when you're talking about like, some an audience members an audience member's reaction to or perception of this character they're very very different yeah i think uh probably the first time i watched it, i was like wait so where is pan like yeah well it, it, i don't know it's it's like like we already talked about the story kind of not it's kind of working against itself by being not in a, a not as straightforward as it should be or could be and then to also have a title that doesn't really make any sense with it i, I think that's odd I think you just stick with your guns and you and you release it with uh, the title it, it originally had or or its uh, its Spanish title. I, I think that's so odd. But um, all right. So I want to move on and talk about um, the aesthetic of this film now. Yeah, and this is such like this is so important for Guillermo del Toro. And I want to make a a, a a distinction about like what kind of creator he is. Like he is a world builder. He's a storyteller. He's not a filmmaker. And what I mean by that is everything that's visually interesting comes from Del Toro's fantasy elements, the set details, the monster creations. Nothing is visually interesting because of how it was shot. Like I made a big deal about this in Kronos, and so I'm going to aim to be concise here <laughs> rather than just like, oh, I sucked for this reason, sucked again, it sucked again. Don't worry, I edited you out heavily in that episode. That's so good because, yeah, I'm sure it was not a good listen. <laughs> no, so it's, it's fine. I'm gonna be, this is going to be the only real section about this. Um, Del Toro has a Hollywood style about his technique. His camera movements are in the service of narrative. His framing choices are in the service of narrative. His shot lengths are in the service of narrative. Everything is about creating story, moving plot, which he does well, but... We see his movies from the single perspective of the narrator. We never get inside the heads of characters because A, they don't have nuance, and B, because the camera never tells us a story. 
Anything that's important is either shown in a super obvious way or said in expressed terms. Like he's he's clearly a clever writer, but um, Del Toro's movies are visual novels and not not suited for the the medium of film. Um, but I really I found it really like you were mentioning like uh, contemporary reviews uh, when the film came out. I saw one that was uh, um, the the snippet that titled the link was Del Toro never coddles his audience, and I was like. Did we even watch yeah. the same movie? Like he zoomed in on a pregnant belly to show you like how creepy Vidal was when rubbing yeah, Carmen's yeah. belly. I I wonder if they mean that in terms that that movie was movie is violent and it's uh it's not really shy about like that kind of stuff. And I wonder if that's what it meant by you're not coddled, not necessarily like you're not being coddled, but with storytelling because you are being coddled with the storytelling. Because mm. uh, yeah, every everything is kind of pointed out this the problem is that the two different stories are if they're pointing everything out to you but they just aren't cohesive mm -hmm. uh but yeah i i do find that if that's what he that article meant by it that you're not being coddled in terms of storytelling it's very wrong <laughs> yeah so and to stress like i just do not understand the critical acclaim of this film because we'll get into why but this film is universally loved by by critics but there is you have all of these messy narrative stories, narrative elements, and there is nothing uh, in, in terms of camera work, camera language, uh, aspects of the of the medium that can save it. And you'd be like, okay, well, I really, really love that. Like in a way, like like all of Aronofsky stuff is is very visually interesting because of the camera. It's like you know, you might not care so much about the plot or that it doesn't make sense, but all of these things, there's so much fun going on that you can pick up. Like I like this thing about it. That's I wonder what's going on here. I wonder how Nightmare Alley will be, uh, just because going from like Kronos and then Pan's Labyrinth in 2006 to now seeing something, it's 15 years later. You know, I wonder how, because I, I haven't seen The Shape of Water. Oh, was, really? I think that was his last film, right? Yeah. So it's, I don't know. It's really the same as this. I, I wonder if his camera technique has evolved at all. But what I want to talk about, we were talking about camera and using the medium. I want to talk kind of about the palette of this movie it's so yeah. odd um the amount of uh, i like it seems like filters and stuff that are used in this uh it seems like the night scenes are kind of like your fairy tale scenes or they're all very blue and then sometimes during the day it's very saturated and you get like kind of really warm colors and the grass is very green and it it's sort of it's sort of odd to me it's kind of flipping the two ideas of what you think is like comforting colors like when she's in her fairy tale time it's like these cold colors and then when it's during the day, kind of when she has to deal with uh, the rough parts of her real life, it's kind of these richer colors. But then there's other scenes like uh, Mercedes is like fleeing after she's uh, after she stabbed Vidal and it's very blue and it's supposed to be during the day. And, and so I, I, I it feels like the colors are all over the place sometimes. And I think that you can use color to like tell stories like different mind states that characters are in or kind of the mood of uh, the scene we're going into. But I don't understand the use of filters in this or, or, or color correcting in this. Yeah, and exactly. Like, and I think there are like, there's some, t there's a, like think of when the doctor first leaves uh, Carmen's bedroom and he's talking with Mercedes and Ophelia is looking out the door and she uh, matches eyes with um, Mercedes uh, after she'd been given the, the medicine. And then Ophelia closes the door and then suddenly everything's really green. Yeah. And I, I thought that, okay, maybe that's the symbolic or anything, but it never comes up again. Like you have all of these blues. And I really think that there is not an 
I, I think that it's just meant to show nighttime with all of these blues, but I don't think there's actually a single night shot. I think that uh, because when you look at the contrast between the lights and the darks in those scenes, they look like you've either shot this with a filter or you've color corrected in, in, in post because it looks like if you took that off, like you have sunlight shooting through. Right. Because we've seen, I mean, like think of The Witch. That movie was absolutely shot in the dark because every <laughs> can't see anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we know exactly what a film looks like that doesn't that shoots in the dark. Yeah, no, I, I agree, and that's that's why it it just is. It feels like all the color changing isn't in the service of anything. So I just wonder why yeah. you do it. Yeah, maybe it's like fairy tale element, like uh, like a little bit of a it being like mystical and magical and unreal. But that doesn't that doesn't strike me as the reason he did it because that's not really why what Del Toro. Um, does with his his symbols right um let's move to music now the score uh i i just want to watch a movie with a really nice big score again it feels like everything we've done lately is forgettable or uh, i think this movie really plays up its musical cues to really let you know to pay attention you mentioned the scene earlier which i have a note about where it's like the first time ophelia and mercedes like kind of have a look at each other Mm. and the music like really spikes to like let you know like oh mercedes is up to something like pay attention right now and it, it always seems to happen that way and i understand that musical cues help an audience you know track the story and what's going on but like we have no context we don't even really know ophelia we have no idea who mercedes is and, and so it just feels like these musical elements to help you follow along don't really mean anything because i don't know any of these characters yet so it, there's a lot of stuff like that in this movie i'm not a big fan of little spikes and and stuff in in a score to help you feel something mm-hmm. it seems like cheap to me but other than that it's a nice fairy tale score yeah and i do like the one thing i do like about it is um i can't remember if it was the first time that we heard this refrain but it's the uh the melody that plays when ophelia is dying um at the end is actually sung to her early in earlier in the film when that uh, mercedes is by, coming yeah yeah exactly and That's i don't know pretty. if that yeah i like that that was a nice connection there i don't know if it was the first time uh if that it had played before that but yeah otherwise it's just it's 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 basically a nice fairy tale sounding score it plays in the background it's uh not it's not intrusive at all which is nice um but it's like one time earlier mercedes is like comforting ophelia and she's humming it to her Mm -hmm. and then at the end she hums it to her again it is it like that's a nice sweet part where well she's she's also humming it but the music is also playing too right right? yeah so i like that like that it exists both diegetically and non-diegetically yeah i guess okay I, i do like that part of the score I just want to listen to something really big again, you know? Yeah. <laughs> let's get a Hans Zimmer movie again. Uh, let's move on to costumes. I, I know that this is kind of my forte. It's the stuff I really like. I, I actually don't have a ton to take away from the costumes. You have a lot of like, you know, rebels and just kind of peasant garb. And mm-hmm. and then the only other thing is a bunch of soldiers in, in uniforms. So that the only other thing I really like caught that I really liked was uh, I love the king and queens, uh, their, mm. their, their robes and everything. That that scene at the end is so cool to me. I love the courtroom with them up on the their thrones on the pedestals, and then I love kind of the opulent uh, wardrobe they have, all the, like the crushed velvet and like silks, and I love mm-hmm. the robes draped down across the pedestals. It's it's all just very robust, and I love that kind of stuff. Um, and and so thank you for I think you put in your notes like Connor's time to shine. So yeah, I, I always love getting a if there's a cool costume or a good one, I I like pointing it out. So that that's kind of the big one. The thing that is the real showstopper in this movie is all the prosthetics and stuff like that, that makeup. 
Um, but we can continue. There, there's some other stuff going on, like uh, like the green. There's a lot of green clothing. Yeah, and I think it's really only between Ophelia and Mercedes, and I think it's supposed to be because those storylines are supposed to be connected. They're supposed to be... Um, I think they're really supposed to be the same character um, because I think Mercedes says at a couple times, like, uh, well, she says once... Um, you know, I, I don't believe in, I used to believe in fairies, but I don't anymore. Um, that type of thing. They're both wearing green clothing. Um, so I think it's there that they're meant to have the same outward view on fairy tales or like, you know, being under the boot of someone oppressive. Right. Right. Um, but that's not really connected. And that's, that's really the only reason that I, I, other reason i think that but i like how in the end when she is in the underworld ophelia's dress is really red yeah and i love that yeah so you have a you have some really good comments about like the fire in this film i found it fascinating yeah isn't that like i think there is one scene where there was actual fire um everything else was cg'd in because segovia spain uh the region that they filmed it in was in the worst drought uh of the last 30 years um and so they didn't even use squib packs for or uh for the blood that was all cg'd in because they didn't want to spark from one of the squib packs to uh uh start a fire yeah which is actually fascinating because i think you can usually tell when there's really bad blood cgi Mm -hmm. i thought it all there is a lot of shooting and a, and a good amount of blood in this movie. A lot of like really close executions. And so the fact that it's all CG, I thought it looked really good. Yeah. It would also explain why uh, the doctor gets shot in the back below mm-hmm. the frame and Ophelia right. gets shot in the stomach below the frame. <laughs> she lifts up her hand. It's just all bloody. It, it, th- <laughs> that's another part of the color correction that I didn't really fit either because it looks like they really turned up the red. Super and it, saturated. It, yeah. And then it, she's in this like really blue nighttime setting that was another part of it. i was like whoa this looks it looks like a really stylized shot it kind yeah. of uh it was it was just it definitely caught my eye um and another like, thing that i was thinking about because i was reading that note you had about the drought there's a lot of rain scenes in this so if they're in the middle <laughs> of the drought it's kind of interesting to me that they somehow had the budget and managed to get all the equipment wherever they were filming to have extended rain scenes i was like what an interesting use of precious water that this area needs apparently so yeah i was definitely thinking about that uh like the second time i had watched it after after i had read that um yeah i mean i'm sure the local plant life really liked it but i'm sure there's a lot of other places that needed the water (laughs) yeah and they also even threw uh fake green moss in places outside to hide how brown everything was i love that (laughs) i I think that's an interesting job in uh hollywood like the like just um Mm. set dressing i think is so cool there's a lot of that you know i I love all the behind the scenes stuff and like lord of the rings is like rife with that i love all the set dressing stuff in, in those behind the scenes things so i like i like finding out more about that all right, let's move on now to the architecture. Uh, I think one of the things I like the most is uh, all like the nice, there's a couple like big round windows. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like to think of them as uh, the Fawn mentions that the king opened up all these portals onto earth so he could find Ophelia. So I liked kind of spotting those. There's not a ton, mm. so I don't imagine it's intentional. But I like the idea of all these like big circle windows, like the one in the bathroom, there's one in the attic. I wish they would have there would have been more that popped up then you could really tie those together as like part of that theme or whatever. But for me, it was just a fun little thing to grab. It's kind of the only really interesting architecture I think in this movie. Um, I think there's a few actual in- uh, interesting details, especially when it concerns the, uh, the phone. But um, yeah, I like that. I don't think that 
del toro is the type of in, intelligent filmmaker to make those that symbolic uh connotation of those circles it's really about um circular shapes and and bright light around ophelia in contrast to vidal um who has a lot of hard lines and hard light so all of the rafters and beams in his like office space which is just strange but uh it looks like he's working out of an old shed like yeah it's, it's really weird that like that's where he keeps his child like, he's a insanely weird character and a psychopath so absolutely but yeah my favorite really one of my, the only shots that i think has interesting composition is the three circles in the bath um that's the only time i i really think that i mean i know it's still part of the set design but it's just something visually interesting that isn't necessarily the point it's something that's supposed that's happening in the background right whereas like the entrance to the the labyrinth is um interesting and it's the point yeah i think too is the uh like the pale man's uh his big like dining room uh -huh. i i love that set and i think there are good shots of it but the the the, it's in service of the story. It's not just like interesting on its own. It's like it's there for a reason to help your narrative, which is, you know, speaks to what you've been saying is everything is in service of the story rather than, you know, just a, a, a cool bit of architecture in the bathroom windows. You know, that's just, it's just a cool thing to see every once in a while. So, uh, yeah, I, um, I don't have anything else on the architecture. Well, so the fawn comes up in a couple places. Like his, his face shape is represented at the, uh, the top of the um, entrance the uh, gateway to the lab, uh, the labyrinth. Um, he also, it's not necessarily architectural, but it's, it's represent, it's, a uh, um, mirroring his, uh, head shape again, the fig tree with the toad. Oh, uh, right, right. Splits out like his horns. Uh, there's a stair railing baluster that has like his head shape and also the, uh, bed headboard. Um, you can see it's actually the, his, Oh, I hadn't noticed that. Yeah. It's his head. Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah. So that's carved into there. And like, that's why, and why I, th I think that like, why the fawn isn't real. You see all of these things where she could have totally taken it from the uh, architecture of the house and then projected it into uh, one of her stories. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there's an interesting bit of the story here where you could try and figure out like what's real, what's not. Is some of it real? Is some of it not? You know, mm -hmm. I, I think there are like, that's why this movie is still interesting to me because I think there are theories you can pull from it. What I really want to talk about is all the prosthetic makeup and the creature designs. This to me is what makes this movie really worth watching because you know whether or not you get caught up or mixed up with the kind of the different storylines going on i still think you can watch these scenes and i love all the interactions with ophelia and the fawn and all that stuff only works because the character design is so good and the prosthetic makeup is so good um i uh who's it uh doug jones yeah does the uh he's the actor underneath all that for the fawn and the pale man mm -hmm. he does that show i can't i think it, it's not i think it's called face off where, oh, oh, he's he he's been like a guest on it. Okay, where that's like a competition where a bunch of prosthetic makeup artists. You I know, love that show. Yeah, I think it's so neat. Uh, Hannah and I were watching Pan's Labyrinth before, and, and she was like, "Oh man, I love that guy because she really likes that show." And I was like, "Oh, the, the skinny dude." <laughs> There's some really great behind the scenes shots of him and all of his fawn get up, and he's talking to Guillermo del Toro like he has the dagger in his hand. He's like. Oh, so you want it in my left hand or my right hand? He just sounds like a, just such a total white dude. Yeah, but he's like. In, he looks like a fawn. It's it's amazing. It's like a behind the scenes stuff of a uh, Darth Vader before um, 
James Earl Jones had his voice dubbed in, you know, and yeah. everything. And the actor playing Darth Vader, he's like yelling, but he just he just sounds like a guy <laughs> in like a big, you know, black getup. So it's all just so goofy looking. But uh, yeah, I, I do really love the uh, the makeup and everything of this. I think it would have been really easy to go over the top and give the Fawn like big tree branch horns with moss hanging off of him and it, all this st- stuff on his face, you know, like you could have gone real tree beard with it. But I like that they, mm-hmm. he, he has a real like woody nature element to him. Yeah. And his, but his face is kept, you know, clear. That way you can have your actor still emote under it. And I think they do a really good job of that. Like there's real personality to that character because you can actually see facial movements and everything. And I love that about that character. Yeah. It's really interesting to like Doug Jones actually. Uh, so Guillermo del Toro um, approached him about playing the role. Um, but was kind of disheartened that the, uh, when he found out that everything was in Spanish. Uh, so he learned Spanish and he spoke all of those lines, but then like they got to post and he was like, man, I'm going to dub it all. Oh, I, I guess I just assumed from the beginning that it was never going to be his voice, which I, I should have looked up. I don't know who did the voice acting for that, but it's uh, phenomenal. Yeah I, yeah. I can't remember, but yeah, it actually did end up being like good because uh, he tried to sp- uh, speak to the, the phonetics of, um, I don't know specifically what that dialect is, but it's Spanish, so the C's have a th- sound, which is different than um, Latin uh, Spanish. Uh, so he has all of the correct vocal affects and the the lip movements, so that when they did dub it, it looks very, very convincing. Oh, yeah. No, I think it's great. Um, just another thing that went into like a lot of the design in general. I watched the behind the scenes with like the, uh, the practical effects team and, and the, all the artists who are going to be working on this stuff, and they were like, Del Toro is like much more specific and attentive than other directors. Like you'll kind of just show them like a mock-up or like uh, some design you have. And a lot of directors be like, yeah, just go ahead and make it. That's good. And they were saying that he was like very particular and he'd come back and be like, no, like that design's all wrong. And he was like, if it looks like something that you'd see spray painted on the side of a van, I don't want it in my movie. (laughs) So I do love that he's like particular. and, And I think that's good because a lot of these characters, like they look I mean, they look like they fit in a Del Toro movie. Like, they look specific to, like, his style. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is uh, The Pale Man, which is also Doug Jones does the uh, the acting under that as well. Uh, I think what's really cool about that character is he's supposed to look like he was once a really big fat guy. And and he had lost a bunch of weight. That's why he has all these, like, skin folds hanging off of him and everything. I love the way that that's captured. Originally, he had a face, though. And they had... Uh, they had done a whole like uh, modeling and everything for the face. They brought it in uh, a mask for Del Toro to look at. He sketched the whole thing out and then just removed the eyes, and that was going to be like the final design. So I, I like the look. I love the look of it. But I feel bad for whoever did all that sculpting. And they're like, yeah, you're gonna have to cover, the, get rid of the whole face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's also interesting knowing um, that sagging skin uh, was a design choice Del Toro made because um, of some of his own weight loss. Oh, I like that. Yeah, so that's like it's it's interesting thinking like of like weight loss as being like a quote unquote good good thing. Um, you know, depending on I mean, when you're a certain weight, weight loss is definitely good. So um, to make it a grotesque thing, yeah, is is kind of interesting. Like like yeah, I lost weight. Let's make it gross. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also love that, and this shows up in the fawn uh, character as well. But you know how the pale man has those really skinny legs. Yeah. So that's all an actual prosthetic too. That he's just wearing like like green like a green leggings like a green suit under it, to so that we can they can just paint it out. And then there's just the little thin prosthetic on the outside of his leg. I love that. It's the same thing for the fawn. You know, at the knee, it like bends backwards and then comes back out to the foot. Well, 
the, the prosthetic does that, but then his leg still just goes straight down into the foot, and he's just wearing like green, like long green socks so they can paint it out. So all the movement is even still Doug Very Jones. real, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that all, all of this only works if you have a good actor underneath all of it. And like, I love the Fawn's movement. He's all like all creaking and kind of shaking, like awake and stuff sometimes. Yeah. Like, the all sound the design great. is so cool. Yeah. And also, um, so the one of the other uh, inspirations for the Pale Man was the painting, uh, Goya's painting of uh, Saturn devouring his son. Oh, God. I saw that painting because I heard it referenced. It's disturbing as hell. It is disturbing. I see it a lot of places now because it, it's just like, who, who would paint that? I don't know. It's, <laughs> it is like terrifying to look at. Yeah. But I totally get it, uh, mm-hmm. and it works well, especially like thematically with that that character does later. Uh, yeah, yeah no, I, I I love that um, that kind of inspiration because I do. It's just the the kind of inevitable like slow moving nature of the pale man makes him so terrifying. That scene has always stuck with me, um, and and a lot of that is just creature design. It's amazing. Yeah, it's it's tough to say. Like I think a lot of people like when they when they see when they think back about this movie or you're talking to someone else about this movie, it it's the pale man. Everyone talks about the pale man, but the fawn is is so interesting as well. But the pale man is just so out there in terms of weirdness, craziness, viscerally disgusting and terrifying. Like I remember like, I don't know if I want to watch this. Right. Because that was always like the thumbnail for like on Netflix. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is funny because like, yeah, Pan's Labyrinth, it's all about a fawn. Like what the hell is that? Yeah. (laughs) So I want to move into probably the most well-known creature in this is the mandrake. (laughs) <laughs> i it, it it's plays such a small role but it has such a interesting origin story i don't know if you know this um a mandrake is born from the semen of a man who's been hung at the gallows what? so like after you've been hung and you ejaculate semen hits the ground and a mandrake is born i don't think that has anything to do with <laughs> pan's labyrinth and it certainly doesn't add anything to this conversation i just wanted you to know that <laughs> that is what a mandrake is that is a fun fact yeah um <laughs> I do have one more interesting bit about the mandrake. The scene where Ophelia puts it in the bowl of milk. Uh-huh. Uh, that was originally shot with the potato with little visual markers on it. That way the VFX team could then go in and they'll, they'll add their CG model on top of it. Oh, weird. So then there was a second shot where they brought in a mandrake prop and Ophelia was going to put it in the bowl of milk. And it was just mm-hmm. as a reference shot so that way the VFX artists could get the lighting right on their VFX mandrake that was then going to be used in the shot. But Del Toro liked that take better, so they put that in the movie, and it was a big obstacle for the VFX crew because they're like, well, we picked a potato because it was small, and we could put our mandrake on top of it easily. And so then they had to spend a bunch of time painting the whole uh, prop out, and that way they could add in then the, the CG version on it. So Del Toro making stuff very easy for his visual effects artists. I, I like can't that. even imagine why you would choose one of those takes more so over, like, to the point where... This one is more important than the other. She is putting a potato in a bowl. They said her eyeline is much better and she interacted with the prop, the prop better, I guess. I don't know. I'm not a director, so. But I can tell you what is that scene makes no difference to me if it was one take or the other, I don't think. Yeah, you're not looking at Ophelia. You're looking at this yeah. weird little like root doll that's suddenly squirming like a baby. Yeah, it's great though. If you if you go, there's behind the scenes footage of her just putting a potato in a bowl <laughs> with these red <laughs> markers on it so they can track it and everything. It's it's really funny. Um, we can move on to the toad now. Yeah, you have a, a lot of interesting notes on the toad. I just looked at it and was like, okay, that's probably all CG. And it, I don't really care because it doesn't matter thematically really that much right. other than the, the overall why we're there in the first place. 
Yeah, I, I I love that you let me just kind of go like cut loose on this because this is the stuff about movies that I really like. I love all this behind the scenes mm. stuff. And then in part two, you can dive more into the characters and all like the narrative and and uh, all. You're much better at that. I like this stuff, so I like that. <laughs> I like that this is a two parter because then I can kind of go off on some of this behind the scenes stuff. But the Toad was originally it was going to be puppeted, and it was going to be they built a really big set like this sort of cavern underground that Ophelia would get into. She was going to crawl through this tunnel, get into this cavern, and it was going to be like a fight scene, which is well, odd. Yeah. Uh, and the toad was going to bounce around all over the room, and and it was going to be kind of like an action set piece. Well, that they Del Toro was like assured that, oh, the prop won't be too heavy. It'll be fine. And it got, to, got on set, and it was much too heavy for anyone to really move around in any practical way. <laughs> so they had to redesign the whole scene, and they decided, okay, we'll just have the Toad and Ophelia have their confrontation in the tunnel, which was originally just going to be a scene of her just crawling through it. It wasn't going to be anything more than that. But the Toad is kind of too big for the tunnel, and they couldn't really operate it well in there either. So that's why the Toad <laughs> essentially became almost entirely CG for the, for the film. But okay. yeah, there, there's a whole big prop that's like not really used at all. And that's what ends up deflating then yeah. when like, it shoots out. Which I don't, I really don't understand the whole visual representation of like it turning inside out and that, like that whole set piece is odd, but it's it's a Del Toro thing. That's what I think. He he just does odd stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I love that idea of he was like, yeah, the scene was totally different on Friday, and then on Monday we shot something completely different, and just kind <laughs> of like that that flexibility I think is like pretty interesting uh, for a scene that I think is probably the least interesting part of like the fantasy element of the movie. It has like the most interesting backstory story on how it got there. I think. Yeah, I, I'd say so too. Because that's that's a massive. I don't know why. First of all, I don't. I just don't know why you design a, a fight scene between the toad. Because I also think that it's it's really more of a. It's supposed to be representative of um, the toad being like her baby brother, and it's killing the tree above, which is her mother, and how she can like try and calm the baby so that it stops killing the tree like that's what i feel like that whole so to be like you know like having like street fighter like yeah the birth canal it's really weird yeah i don't yeah I, i'm glad that narratively that part changed because i think it fits better but yeah a big action set piece would make no sense i, I don't think but yeah I, del toro he's like yeah it was basically like use the set and showcase it and essentially it would look like there's a tiny toad in it uh, because the set was so big or like pivot and do it that way. So I, I think it's I think it's good. I think it worked out better for the film that way. It's just interesting to think of a big uh, puppeteered frog or toad that you couldn't really use in a big set, and you also couldn't really use it in a tiny set. <laughs> so they just CGI'd it. <laughs> That's so funny. It's also like yeah, like it's that would seem like pacing wise, like to have like something really action packed. Like the pale man scene is not like he's chasing her, sure, but it's not like super choreographed. So I feel like it would be really out of place. And this is, again, like the thing about Del Toro that like he just doesn't seem to understand sometimes that his elements don't work together. So I'm glad that he was actually forced to to cut back on his vision for this because it works better now. For sure. Uh, so that's that's all I have for creatures. Thanks for letting me go off on that. We can move on to the <laughs> characters now, though. Uh, we can start with, uh, I mean, let's just start with Ophelia. Yeah, she's really interesting. She's kind of like I like the way she's depicted in the book. Um, the when the the draw the blank one that the phone gives her, um, 
she has longer hair. She reminds me of like an Alice in Wonderland uh, type character. She's very easy to sympathize with because of that, because, you know, she's got a mean father and a dying mother. She longs to escape her world through the, the purpose of stories. And like, I think we can all relate to that. This is why th- this movie is so magical and has such a claim is because there is something very human at that core. Um, but she doesn't seem to care about like her nicer things. Like, I mean, she likes the dress, but like everyone likes it more than her. And, you know, the oh, fact yeah. that it's like it gets muddy is like really not. She doesn't care so much about the fact she's just cold, and not that she she doesn't care that she disappointed anyone. I love um, that her mother is so excited about the shoes. She's like, look at how pretty yeah, these shoes are. Beatles. And and Ophelia couldn't care less. I love that. I also feel like it's weird that they just brushed over the fact that she made her dress. Like clearly, if her father was a um, you know her father being a tailor. And her mom clearly was something like it too. It's very interesting that it's just like, I made you this dress and then moving on. I feel like that could have been something that would work thematically or symbolically. And it doesn't seem like it even has anything to do with her character building. No. Which is so strange to me. Like why even include the the detail at all? Just say like, I got, you know, like look what the captain bought you. I I would have liked that that better. It would have worked better. Because I think they're, I think there could have been elements of this movie where Vidal maybe is trying to come across as something, someone that Ophelia could start trusting. She could see him. And then maybe she sees his true nature, you know, like it, just a yeah. little snippets, like she's sneaking around and sees how he really is. Yeah. That's how she learns to find him to not be very trustworthy. I would have liked that better than, I think there's other ways you could have worked that in. And the dress would have been a really good one, I think. Yeah, exactly. Because then he's like giving her something and it's not something like she ruined that her mother made. But like if she had seen the bottle face smashing scene. Oh man. Can you even imagine? That would, that would, that's really like changing my perception of like the relationship between these characters. But it's very immediately like uh, it's the wrong hand. He like squeezes her hand when she goes to shake it. Like it's just, there's no nuance to him at all. There's no nuance to their relationship um, at all. Yeah, I, I let's just move straight into Vidal because he might be the most ruthless villain I've ever seen in a movie. He's uh, amazingly cruel, and I, his introduction I think is is absolutely perfect. Fun fact: uh, the uh, studio advised Del Toro to not cast him because he's actually known for more comedic roles. Like they were like, "Yeah, you're you know from like in certain areas of Spain, this character will not play the same." It's like I feel like it's probably not like Jim Carrey, but it's probably oh, like right, yeah. it's it's like similar to casting someone like that, like to have this like such a a, a change of like who uh, this character is. Um, playing such a ruthless i mean like i don't there's there are very few uh scenes that i've ever seen where you just get a a sense of total depravity there's no nuance to it at all but it's like how sadistic can you be smashing in the face of uh of a guy who's just like back he's not even like back talking you he's just like speaking for someone else and like oh i don't like that like david spade walking around shooting rebels in the face (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know that that's a sergey lopez who plays uh vidal I think he's great. Like, oh. if for for the character he is in this, perfect. I I, I absolutely love it. Um, and and you talked about like the 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 you know bottle smashing scene, mm-hmm. and I love he he pulls the rabbits out and he tells his like uh you know one of his lieutenants or whatever he's like search him better next time. Yeah, it's I their think, fault. I think he was gonna kill him because he went through the bag too. I think he saw the rabbits and it didn't matter. I think which uh, to me that interpretation makes him even more cruel and violent and, and, and out of control is the fact that he knew they were telling the truth and it didn't matter. He was like, well, you know, you were, 
you're out in my woods or whatever, and like he's gonna punish them no matter what. And that that just adds to the villainous character, which is perfect for a movie that is a fairy tale movie. You need to have that like that wicked witch or like that evil stepmom. Yeah, that's more psychopathic than it is yeah. just bad. But then you also have him being the villain that rebels would take up a cause against, and and it just it, it all doesn't like mesh well to me. But I think uh, if I want to say like a, a lighter point or um, a nice point about this, the cast and everything is, is he does great. I love, I love the Vidal character in the role he's in. Yeah. And I do love how they, they've, um, this is one of the characters, like there's not nuance to him, but there is like depth in terms of that watch. Um, that watch is really interesting because, so I first I thought it was completely broken, but it's not, it actually does change time throughout the, the movie. Even if the, cause I was like, okay, he's fixing the gears maybe like, but the watch, cause you don't see the tech secondhand tick, but in, multiple different places the watch is a different time so the fact that he that that myth of his father smashing the the watch uh to know the time of his death is weird it's really more of like an idea of legacy like i'll fix the watch so that my son can pass on the legacy um and i also think it's representative of how the world runs on his time you know 15 minutes late that type of thing i like it a lot too the i like the watch is more of that alice in wonderland uh imagery oh and also like uh, Ophelia crawling into the tree, you know, it's similar to Alice in Wonderland. I think there's a lot of cool little elements uh, taken from that. Um, but we can move on. We can like briefly about the fawn because I want to talk more about him in our part two. We're going to talk so much about the fawn yeah. in part two because he's going to be in multiple sections uh, because, I mean, let's, let's just start with first impression. Like he seems like my first impression was like, oh, quirky, very helpful. Like this is interesting. Like what, he's going to help her escape. And then like he's kind of creepy for no reason. And then like he's impatient with her because she's not completing the tasks on time. And then he's justifiably mad at her. And then that, that, that baby bloodletting scene at the end uh, just comes out of nowhere. But right. like it's out of nowhere in a way that, I it think just there's some build up to it, but there's some build up to it, but like we've already like kind of gotten the sense like maybe this guy isn't that trustworthy, and I don't think that that's really the point of, um, like the the theme of this film. It's about questioning people, but he was giving her the reasons to question him before that, so yeah. it's very easy for her to be like, no, that's weird because I already don't trust you. Right. Uh, I think he might be the most confusing character in this for kind of the same reasons you said it's not only does his look kind of lend to someone like your your hero shows up and meets a creature you know like uh yeah i another fawn would be like chronicles of narnia yeah they meet uh mr tumnus and he's like nice fawn he's like trying to help him out but he looks that part and this fawn does not at all he is like kind of creepy looking and and he he's like a weird aloof like he won't tell ophelia's name when they first meet so i think there is some like characteristics to him that would make you think that maybe he has some goal. He's trying to meet his own means and he's maybe going to use Ophelia to do it. And then the way he turns out in the end, it, it, none of that is really justified. So I, <laughs> I don't really understand this character, but I also find him to be the most interesting character, uh, which is why I want to elaborate on him more later on. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, yeah, very interesting, but we'll save that. That's a, that's a part two. So very interesting that you mentioned Chronicles of Narnia. Guillermo del Toro was actually approached about directing those. Oh and boy! Turned it down because he wanted to direct this. Oh, okay. And he actually considers it his like version, like his Chronicles of Narnia. You know, childlike, but like uh, childlike fairy tale, but you know, viscerally upsetting. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I, I, I could, I could see that. I like that he didn't do Chronicles of Narnia. I just like those books when I was a kid, and I don't need them to be 
del Toroed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although he would be perfect for it because like that's it's it's a book. He's very good at making books. Like if he made video games, like oh my gosh, like can you imagine him like in the same um universe as like uh Hideo uh Kojima? Wasn't he didn't he help wasn't he a part of the storyboarding or producing for Death Stranding? Oh yeah, you know, you're right. That's actually that makes sense. He's yeah. In it. He's in it. I yeah. forgot he's in it. I man, I didn't get far enough in that game to actually enjoy it enough. That has uh all the visual elements that you would find in a del toro movie or video game or oh something so yeah he he really just needs to make the leap from uh films to straightforward narrative video games uh, yeah. my, he would be he would be one of the greatest of all time yeah like like we're saying maybe narratively and character wise there's stuff that doesn't work in this film but visually it's awesome and if you can make a cool looking video game i'm, I'm all about that uh but let's move on to i think uh, the most boring character is carmen maybe yeah I, yeah. I I think the only thing that makes her interesting is if you want to take her and compare her to Ophelia. I think one scene that really spells out their relationship really well and sets up the dynamic of the two characters really well is the scene where uh, Ophelia's just gotten back. She's all muddy from being under the tree with the toad, and she's taking a bath, and Carmen's like, I'm so disappointed in you. Your father's going to be so disappointed in you. And she's like, oh, you mean the captain? And uh, her mom rolls out of the bathroom, and she's just got this huge grin on her face. And I like to think of... Like that's Ophelia is brave and Carmen is not like she, you know, gave up whatever life she thought she could have and did what she think is thinks is right for Ophelia. But she married a crazy person because maybe she thought it was right, but she's kind of like a coward in that way instead of trying to maybe figure out a way to do it on her own. And I know she falls ill and there's all these things that, you know, it could, all these circumstances that lead to that. But I still think of it as instead of, you know, going at your adventure head on, she was like, you know what, like, let me take this safer route. And I'll and I'll go in a place where I know like there, there's wealth and there my daughter will be cared for instead of like going on this adventure and trying to figure stuff out, which is what Ophelia does. So I like that scene a lot for that reason. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that because the more the more I think about it, like so I think that Ophelia and Mercedes are kind of connected in thematically, but Carmen just exists in her own world but she should really be the antithesis of the two she's compromising her integrity uh, and her ideals to give Ophelia a better life that like that would she'd be better off uh like financially she'd have pretty things she'd be taken care of she can uh you know sleep in a bed and like she's not out in the rebel wilderness she's just uh she just has to she's in bed with a fascist i think that would thematically work a lot better but we don't care we like none of these characters are are really connected to each other ophelia mercedes and um carmen are just connected because they're in, in the, the same, same house space yeah. exactly but they don't really interact in a way that would that would give them these thematic elements right um i have i have a hot take for you okay i think vidal killed carmen's husband and let me give you a little background on why okay. so uh it's 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 following the toad scene as well they have that dinner with a it looks like other kind of dignitaries other kind of higher ups uh-huh. that uh, vidal has had over for dinner and one of them asks carmen how they met and she says, oh, they met at like the shop and then her husband dies. And then shortly after, uh, Vidal shows up and they, they get together. So I think it's like he was coveting Carmen, realized like, oh, she's married, does away with Carmen's husband and then marries her. And then I think he's now resents Carmen because she tries to hold his hand and he pulls away. I think he resents that he went through all this effort to get her and now she's sick and out, but he's already married her. So he's like stuck with her. You know, and I think one of the dinner guests even says that it's kind of a coincidence. Yeah. Yep. Oh, I don't think that's intentional at all, knowing Del Toro. 
But I like that. I like, I like that idea a lot. Yeah, I would really, I feel like, yeah, there's just like, we need like a few more things like that to really, really round out the character of Vidal. Um, but I like that a lot because I think, I think, I think that more than, I think that's a good take. I yeah. think it's a very good take. It It's certainly in line with his character too. I think it also lends to Vidal also, then he, he seems to kind of have eyes for Mercedes later. And I think it's because yeah. he knows he's like, Ugh, like I'm stuck with Carmen, but he, he's like into Mercedes, but in a very domineering way. It's like very toxic and unhealthy, obviously. But, mm-hmm. you know, he's making eyes at her, but he's also like, uh, you know, like, oh, cook these rabbits this way. And, you know, he's, he's very like creepy about the keys and he's, but he's always seems to like want to have something to do with her, but he's just very uh, aggressive about it. Yeah. You know, kind of a, uh, just a very creepy undertone to everything he does with Mercedes. And it's funny, yeah, saying keys, because obviously that's a, a Freudian symbol for penises. So like, <laughs> yep, there you go. I'm the only one with the key. Yeah, yeah. I have the only copy. Like in this, you know, in, you know, he's talking about like the storehouse and having control of all the food and stuff, but it's also a power symbol. It's the same thing. So whether you want to make the, uh, equate it to a penis or not, you, you agree with that. Um, I don't think Del Toro thinks of it as a penis, um, but that's kind of why it exists, like why keys exist as as penis symbols being synonymous with power symbols is because they they control, they penetrate, and only one person has them. Right, right. I do want to move on to Mercedes then. I think, like we said, I think her and Ophelia, I think she's just old Ophelia. Yeah. I, I think that is what she should be Yeah, if you want to read way more than what this film is giving us. I actually thought... The first couple times, maybe I guess the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, like she's going to reveal that she's also the daughter of the king and she chose to like forgo eternal life to stay on earth and like help fight the good fight with the rebels <sighs> because they're so alike. And I was like, and they, she does have interactions with Ophelia that lend me to think that they do have a more rich relationship than like any other character does with Ophelia. Mm. So I thought for sure that was going to happen and it doesn't, but she still kind of takes on that role. I think of like, older sister you know i which is funny she's actually the same age as the actor who plays carmen both mercedes and carmen are technically the same age oh, okay well yeah but that's a, that's such a fascinating idea that's also something i think that would have made this movie better is if moana was actually mercedes the whole time and not ophelia that is really really cool and another subversion of fairy tale um tropes right that is completely a missed opportunity. Yeah, it, it's unfortunate because she only exists in this movie to further the dumb rebels plot. That's it. Yeah. And I, I would have I would have liked if there was a little more to that character, and I think there could have been. So that's why it's unfortunate. All right, well, that's pretty much all I have on characters, and I think that's a good place to uh, wrap up our part one here. Yeah, because we're really going to get into... What we think this, what what we think the problems with this movie are, uh, narratively and ways that this can be better. Yeah. So uh, with that, um, you can reach us at now. This is podcasting one zero zero at gmail dot com. We also upload all these to YouTube and have a comment section there. Uh, I like checking those and seeing what everyone has to say. Uh, you can also find us on any podcast platform like uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Yeah. So with that, uh, we're wrapping up part one of Pan's Labyrinth. Please join us for part two. And thank you for listening to Now This Is Podcasting.